Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is for us. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started with Clint Haycock. How you doing, Clint? Thank you. In fact, this actually is a Sunday, so I feel like I'm back in church, David. <laughs> yes, yes, and boy, have we got a have we got a churchman for you today? Oh, uh, we got a fact, doozy. You have the churchman for us today because this is one that you brought to me. This is Doug Wilson. Hey, give us a brief uh, synopsis of Doug Wilson and what he's going to talk about today. Okay, so Doug Wilson, if people don't know who he is, he runs basically a sprawling religious empire up in Moscow, Idaho. And he's not just a pastor of Christ Church. He's been pastor since, I think, about 1977, so he's a long-time guy there. But he runs this seminary, a Bible college, a day school. He's got a publishing house, Canon Press Publishers, that publishes all of his books. He's a voluminous writer. He's on YouTube. He's on Amazon Prime. The problem with Doug Wilson is that he is basically running, in effect, a high-control religious group, if not a cult up there in Moscow, and he's had a huge influence in the Christian homeschooling, Christian day school movement. He's got a massive reach because of guys like John Piper on the Desiring God Network. He's being platformed on mainstream sort of evangelical, you know, shows and websites and blogs. And he's very much into this biblical patriarchy, which is what we're going to see today. He's in the complementarian biblical patriarchy camp, and he's talking about how effeminacy has crept into the church, which is a standard line within that sort of world. Great summary. I uh, tend to think that anything calling itself Christianity in a place calling itself Moscow should be avoided. <laughs> I mean, that's you've got enough. That gives away the game right there. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Doug Wilson, I've heard this entire sermon. You have heard uh, a lot of uh, this sermon. Uh, I just want to say up front, it starts off sounding like uh, some really good stuff. He almost sounds uh, liberal, almost sounds progressive. Uh, it's very digestible, and it makes you want to lean in and hear more. But I can tell you, that is a lie. He is, he is definitely not liberal. He is definitely no. not progressive. And we're gonna we're gonna see that unfold. So you know, maybe the first twenty minutes or so of this sermon, you're gonna think, yeah, this sounds really good. Uh, beware. Uh, we're gonna try to do this with limited interruptions. This is a really long sermon. We have got a really short period of time. This is gonna be our mid-season uh, break. It's a little bit early for mid-season, but I am moving house. Uh, long distance move. Uh, we bought a house. Uh, we we got it kind of on the cheap, and we didn't have to pay any down payment or closing costs and so uh it's going to really reduce our rent we've been kind of fooling with this for a long time uh now that it's all over but the closing i um i feel okay talking about it so uh that's why you haven't heard much from me lately and is why you're going to hear even less from me <laughs> in the next uh few months we're on a plane this week um and our stuff is leaving out Tuesday. We don't have a single box packed. Happy days. Uh, so, <laughs> no time uh, like the present. No time like the present. This uh, show will probably be cut up into two parts, and it might end up being a three month hangover <laughs> cliffhanger. So, you're going to get the first part. We're going to try to record all of this right now, but if we don't, we're just going to have to come back uh, in a few months and record it later. With that said, we're talking real fast. Here we go, Doug Wilson. And I have already <laughs> screwed it. Here we go. Doug Wilson. Let's pray. 
Father, we commit this time to you. Please give us clear minds as we work through this material. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I, w- I want to give uh, re- uh, allow ample time for Q&A. So if you have questions, please uh, feel free to keep track of them uh, because oftentimes the rabbit trail is the point. So uh, what I want to do is begin by um, removing a common misconception uh, that non-believers or people outside the conservative Christian movement have about what Christians think about uh, sexual roles in marriage, uh, headship and submission particularly. Uh, Headship and submission does not mean the submission of every woman to every man. It is not, uh, the Bible doesn't teach that women should submit to men. The Bible teaches that a wife should submit to her husband and a corollary of that is that this wife submitting to her her husband doesn't have to submit to anyone else, right? In other words, submitting to one man excludes submitting to to men. That's the first thing. The second thing is that when a man and a woman, both of them sinners, both of them fallen beings, are trying to work out what it's like to be in a headship and submission relationship, when both of them are fallen and selfish, that takes some working out, that, that takes some uh, dedication, that takes some conversations. And you want to pause it there? Talk- yep, here we go. I know we said we were going to let him roll, but we, we have to touch on this. And we've noticed this, I think, in a couple other sermons we've deconstructed, David, and that is the presuppositions that they're operating from. And he already said that men and women are fallen creatures so that's his operative sort of baseline that he believes the, that the Bible teaches that men, you know, people are born into sin, and therefore the whole issue of submit of wife submission to her husband is already problematic, given that they're both sinful from birth. Right. Uh, this is an excellent point. If you don't start with a presupposition that we are fallen creatures, a lot of this just doesn't make sense, and. Part of this is built on a very fundamentalist notion, and I would also say a very biblical uh, notion, as uh, all kind of pushes the idea. And you know, you find it in the Genesis story: uh, the woman is submissive to the husband, subordinate to the husband, as part of the punishment uh, handed out in the Garden of Eden. Uh, so the the woman would uh, have to be uh, subordinate to her husband as per that story. But in order to believe that, you then have to take that story very, very literally, mm-hmm. uh, which is starting to fall out of favor even in some conservative uh, circles. I don't think it's fallen out of favor for this guy. Let's uh, see what else he has to say. You know what? While I'm paused, I'm just going to go ahead and say this right now. I started a write-up. There will be a write-up for this. Uh, whether I finish the whole uh, video today or not, uh, you will get the write-up at some point. Uh, probably finish on the plane this week. But uh, the first line of it, is there a difference between masculinity and toxic masculinity? I don't think so. The controversy mm-hmm. begins. And so uh, this sermon that you're uh, hearing uh, and will continue to hear is really less about the woman's role of submission, although it's about that, and it's more about the man's role in masculinity and so it's it's about his views of masculinity and uh, i would contend that his idea of masculinity is what uh many uh modern secularists secularists would just call toxic 
masculinity and it's what I would call toxic masculinity. So with that, mm -hmm. let's uh, let this unfold a little bit more. Talking about headship and submission, one of the problems, one of the difficulties that that husbands, Christian husbands, conservative Christian husbands fall into is the, does the Apostle Paul teach submission in marriage? Well, yes, he does. And it's very easy for him to open up his Bible to Ephesians 5 and say, here's your verse, what's your problem? You know, why don't you, why don't you, do, why don't you do what the Bible so plainly says you should do? Well, this leads us into the topic of tonight's discussion. And that is, she could say, uh, and, and if she said it sweetly and with a good attitude, it'd be fine to say, um, I don't know how to submit. I, I just, this is the, probably the third or fourth time I've heard him say this, and it's um, just causes an itch in the back of my mind. <laughs> if she says it sweetly and with a good attitude. Yeah, that'd be you know, okay. You know what, women, uh, you don't have to say things sweetly, especially when you're dealing with some kind of bullshit like you have to submit to me. Uh, and the idea that the only way that a, a, a wife can approach her husband is sweetly and with a good attitude. Now, he can be Mr. Grumpy Pants all he wants, but she must approach him almost with a kind of reverence. You, you can just kind of see this uh, underlying attitude slip in there. I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think we're going to see him talk about this later on, that women, this is their sort of loophole He's a complementarian for sure, edging toward biblical patriarchy, which is a bit more extreme than complementarianism. He's going to talk about that later on, the differences between egalitarian and complementarian views, which is a whole thing in and of itself. But if if the husband doesn't do his job, then the wife has sort of a loophole to say, wait a minute, I can question this dynamic. But you can see already he's got a very literalistic hermeneutic of the Bible. The Bible clearly teaches, he says, that wives have to submit to their husband. So what's the problem you know, well, there clearly is a problem, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And um, my wife has never heard any of this nonsense about saying difficult <laughs> things to me sweetly and with a good attitude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. I think my girlfriend would say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Good on, good on her. <laughs> Show me. Yeah. Model. Could you model it for me? Could you demonstrate that for me? And here is the quirk, the 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 thing that many people miss. One of the central metaphors or descriptions of the Christian church in, in scripture is that of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. Now this is interesting because the bride made up the whole body of Christ, the whole Christian church is 50% male. Right, so half of the bride is male, the other half of the bride is female. And that means that when she says, show me how, demonstra demonstrate what submission uh, looks like for me, she's not saying, uh, demonstrate something uh, for me that you will never have to do. Uh, when Jesus was sent into the world to lay down his life for his people, he, he was the eternal son of God and he submitted to the will of his father. He submitted to the will of his father and he laid down his life, it says in Philippians 2, and he was obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So Christ, who is the one we worship, was obedient. He showed us how. So when, when someone says, I don't know how to submit, I don't know how to obey, 
Well, the Lord Jesus showed us how to do that. And so it's not a nonsensical thing for a wife to want her husband to model what she's supposed to be doing. Okay, and or uh, pause it. Yeah, I was going to yep. say, we have to jump in there. Go ahead. Yep. What were you going to say? Uh, I was going to say that, you know, this is a, a nice idea, but biblically speaking, and I think that he would agree with what I'm about to say, um, it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter whether the husband actually demonstrates proper submission and obedience or not, because the wife's submitting to the husband is not dependent dependent on whether he then submits to higher authorities. It would be nice if he did. It would be nice if he wasn't a jerk. But the, the Bible actually uh, teaches that the wife uh, is is bound to submit anyway. So this yeah. is not some kind of loophole uh, for women. Oh, my husband doesn't submit to Jesus, so I don't have to submit to him. Uh, so I, I, he's saying this, and the reason I pointed out is I think he's saying it disingenuously because he doesn't actually believe that it's some kind of loophole. So I'm, I'm, I think yeah. he's just setting he's up. He's going to close false, that loophole. He's going to close it real fast, and um, he's kind of setting up a false progressive uh, progressivism that just isn't any part of his teaching. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say there's two things about what he talks about. One is, again, it reveals his hermeneutic, and that is a very literal reading of the Bible. So the bride of Christ is a metaphor, but he's saying we have to literally apply that to the body of Christ, to the church. So that means 50% of men, 50% of women. How do men become the bride? And he'll talk about this later on in the sermon. This is a problematic interpretation because they're stuck with that metaphor. And the other thing is that if you go back to the history of complementarian views, which is what he's articulating here, it only goes back to about the late 1970s in evangelicalism, and itself was a reaction against the feminist movement of the day. So their model was the Trinity, and that's what he's just articulated. If you want to see what submission looks like, go no further than the Trinity. Christ submits to the Father, the Holy Spirit submits to Christ. The whole thing works as a model of submission that we can relate to as Christians. All right, here we go. All right, because if he's going to lead her, he needs to lead her in everything, including this. Now, how does this, how does this work? Um, I'm, I'm going to appear to be jumping to a different topic, but I'm not. I'm gonna, this is all going to weave together seamlessly. It's going to be marvelous. You're going to be amazed. You will, <laughs> you will comment on it in the Q&A. That was amazing. Um, so uh, one of the controversies in our day is the fact that uh, conservative evangelical churches don't ordain women to be pastors. They don't ordain women to the role of elder. They don't ordain women to the role of deacon, or at least the authoritative role of a deacon. And they don't ordain women to be pastors. And conservative Christians have strong convictions about this, including the women. The uh, uh, conservative evangelical women don't want women pastors any more than the men want women pastors. Because, and the reason for this is because what the Bible teaches. Paul teaches in Timothy that a woman is not to te teach or have authority over a man, but she must be submissive and, and receive instruction and so on. So I will, I will agree with that, that uh, conservative uh, fundamentalist women do not want women pastors. Mm -hmm. uh, the issue, you can find that in a lot of religions, though, in fundamentalist religions. Uh, fundamentalist uh, Muslim women don't want to uh, be free from the hijab. 
but this is just what I call cultural Stockholm syndrome. So mm-hmm. uh, you're right, and uh, the male domination has has worked. It, I mean, it's been going on for centuries. So it has been effective, and it has created the kind of person who doesn't want to be free from those shackles. I mean, even in slave times, and uh, Clint, you and I have talked about slavery a little bit, even in slave times, when slaves were free, many didn't want to leave their their slavery Mm -hmm. because that's all they knew. Uh, So cultural Stockholm syndrome doesn't mean that the condition that you're defending is actually good. Exactly. You can be brainwashed. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I no, I triggered too quick there. I was gonna say, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're conditioned. You're the frog in the boiling water, and it's been you're conditioned. Things become normalized, so you think this is what's supposed to be the way it is because that's what the Bible teaches. When the church gets instruction like that, and it doesn't go down smoothly, we don't like it. It it ruffles it ruffles our feathers. What do we need to do? Well, we need to model submission, right? We need to do what we're told. So when, when you have a church where the, the leadership is very masculine, uh, all the elders are men and the preacher is men, and you've never had a woman preacher there, and you might say, well, that's, that's, isn't that the patriarchy we want to smash? Uh, isn't, aren't the men here being bossy pants? You know, they're... <laughs> They're, they're going around saying, let me tell you what to do and you what to do. No, what they're actually doing is they're doing what they were told. They're, they're modeling submission. So I want to work through, I've got a few prepared comments that I want to uh, work through. And hopefully it will dislodge a, a number of uh, questions you may have wondered about before you got here, or I may bring something up that you want to ask about. So the first thing is that, and this might seem odd, coming from someone who is arguing for the conservative position, which is to say um, men, should be, men and only men should be ministers. Uh, we, have to, uh, we have to discuss why the teaching of the text, what the text of scripture actually uh, says, is irrelevant for so many people. Settling the thing exegetically, here's what Paul taught, won't settle anything as a number of the last several decades has demonstrated. It doesn't settle the doesn't settle the controversy because next year we're voting on it again. Okay, so uh, just a, a quick observation here. Uh, he's saying that if you are arguing for this position, the biblical position, and what you do is come at it with Bible verses and, and good mm-hmm. biblical exegesis, it's not going to matter to the people who want to push this feminist agenda. This is a this is an ad hominem. Uh, so I just I just want uh, people to recognize this ad hominem attack. He's saying those people don't care about the Bible, and that's just not true. There, I've uh, I used to think that when I was when I was young and fundamentalist uh, myself. I mean, if you don't come to the same conclusions as me, it's because you don't care about the Bible. Uh, hmm. and the fact is, the people who are bringing uh, these issues uh, up for you know women leadership and that sort of thing do care deeply about the Bible. They may not read it as literally as someone else. They may not believe in a six day creation. Um, they may not, um, you know, they, they, they might have some, some different 
ideas on some of the more challenging passages, but to say that they are not committed to scripture is just ad hominem and you should recognize uh, what he's saying and, uh, and, and take points off <laughs> uh, yeah. as, as he starts to make his case. Did you have anything to add to that? Well, yeah, I was going to say, uh, even as a fundamentalist, when I was a Christian, I used to, I was deeply troubled by the passages in, you know, First Timothy and First Corinthians, some of the other places, Ephesians, where you know women are supposed to submit. And I tried everything I could do exegetically, studying the Greek, studying textual criticism to try in the historical context to try to figure out a way to make it say something other than it, what it, what it didn't clearly say, you know? So I can remember having these debates and it is a real problematic thing. In fact, one of the things he mentioned, the, the first Timothy quote, I think women are to be silent in the churches. He left that part out. You know, that's another passage. It's real clear. If they have any questions, they're supposed to ask their husbands at home. And that passage is a real problem for even conservatives like him. And he's just kind of, you know, sneakily left that part out, didn't he? Yeah, it's, you know, even though I believe that the that Paul actually did want women to remain silent and not be pastors and not help hold any positions of leadership, mm-hmm. I have heard the arguments from the other side as yeah. well. And it, they are not coming at it from a position of, we don't care about what the Bible says. Uh, so, yeah. Let's uh, let's see what other ad hominems he has to throw at people who don't agree with him. And next year they're voting on <laughs> again. So if there's enormous pressure to go in the direction of uh, women's ordination, and there is, then we need to bring the gospel to bear on what's causing the pressure and stop bringing isolated texts to the symptoms of the pressure. All right, we have to deal with the pressure. We have to stop. Uh, we have to try to stop the movement toward women's ordination. Uh, trying to stop the movement toward women's ordination by means of mere textual arguments is like trying to keep a volcano from blowing up by putting a tarp over it. Uh, not going to work. So, depending on the text and the issue, right, here's the Christians believe that this library of books, 66 different books, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Depending on the issue and the text. Theological liberals are sometimes more to be trusted with what the message of the text actually is than the conservatives are. Okay, now, you might say, why is he going? This is because the liberals are not stuck with the results of whatever it is they come up with, right? Because conservatives confess that the teaching of the text is normative, the conservative has to make a show of actually doing whatever he comes up with. Right? He's stuck with the results of his exege- exegesis, and the liberal isn't. So the liberal can say there. that the yeah, that's This is a little bit that's more interesting of him. Thing. He's, he's just kind of explaining this ad hominem attack a little yeah. bit more, because what he's, what he's arguing is that the liberals are speaking rightly about what the passage says, that, that Paul's doctrine is uh, anti-women leadership, but because the liberals don't care about what the Bible says, they just go ahead and do it anyway. That's what that's what yeah. he's saying. And they so can ignore it. The fundamentalists, they come to that same conclusion, but they have to live with the results of that conclusion because they are faithful uh to obeying God. And those those uh progressives, they could care less. So that's that's yeah. what he's saying there. 
And it's a really, it's an unfair stereotype of the liberal Christian, because for example, you could say, I remember, I've heard this argument that, okay, we talked about the, the Titus passage or Timothy passage, women are to remain silent in the church and ask their husbands at home. One, one possible solution to that uh, problem is Paul didn't write that letter. You know, that wasn't Paul. He didn't say that. And they would say Paul throughout his ministry in the book of Acts constantly promoted women. He had women around him, and he sort of had no problem with women in leadership in the narrative text. So you go, okay, wait a minute. There's some, you know, issues here around the the text and so forth. Did Paul actually write that? Was someone posing as Paul who wrote that? Was it spurious? You know, so he's not even getting into that at all. He's just saying, no, Paul wrote all the letters, and we have to obey it literally. And that's that's where the conservative is stuck. Yeah, and he's just kind of acknowledging the conservative is stuck mm-hmm. because they love Jesus, and so they have yeah. to, so more they than have the to, liberal, more than the liberal. So Paul prohibited yeah. women teaching in the church. Ho ho ho! Right? You know what a maroon. Um, but there it is. At least we get an accurate summary of what Paul's position was. But the conservative cannot afford to say that Paul was wrong, and whether or not they admit it, conservative churches are pressured by the zeitgeist too, and he cannot afford to act as though Paul was simply straight up right. What to do? Well, oftentimes time for a Greek word study, time to, time to finesse it. The problem is, here's the, this is the difficulty, and this is where the pressure is coming from, and this uh, aims at the title of this talk, Effeminacy and the Church. For several centuries, masculinity has been seeping out of us. And in many respects, the church has unfortunately led the way in this masculinity leak, this masculinity seepage. Many- yeah, okay. Um, I know, get your minds out of the gutter, people. I didn't do it this time. <laughs> masculinity seepage. Factors have contributed to this, <laughs> but the upshot is that because of tradition, men have occupied the ministry, but at the same time, sentimentalism and pietism uh, and the definitions of piety have become increasingly feminized. So what, what does a godly minister look like? What does he act like? Well, if the, if the church is being gradually feminized and, and they hold to the, the, te- uh, the teaching of the text that only men can uh, be ministers, What's going to happen is you're creating pressure on those ministers to to conform more to the ideal, and they're going to become increasingly effeminate. The definition of what constitutes... Mm -hmm. There's a really important point here to make, and that is he's just parroting, as I said before, he's parroting the line that started complementarianism and biblical patriarchy, and that is that feminism has corroded the church. The church has become increasingly effeminate and feminized. And you could read, if you read Kristen Cobes Dumais' book, Jesus and John Wayne, she basically charts this out historically, how the movements in the last 20, 30 years within the church, like the Promise Keepers and things like that, are trying to, you know, fight back against the effeminacy in the church. They want men to be back in charge. They want men to be involved. You know, so this is the sort of world that he's coming from, I think. Yeah, I I think uh, this is a good time for the uh, listener to ask themselves, what does it mean for the church to become feminized? 
What is <laughs> what does that even mean? Clearly, uh, it's a bad thing from his perspective. It's a very bad thing. Uh, he is going to give us some clues about what he means, but I just thought that I would plant that in your yeah, mind. Throw that listen, out there. Listen for that. <laughs> what does it mean for the church to become feminized? Its devout piety has drifted into feminine territory. Now, I wanted. I need to make a distinction between feminine and effeminate. Feminine, uh, feminism, uh, excuse me, femininity is a virtue. Uh, uh, femininity is, is, a, is a word that describes a collection of attributes that a woman ought to be displaying. When a man is displaying those same traits, it is out of place and effeminate. Okay, so what are the attributes that a woman ought to be displaying? Yeah, and a man ought not to be displaying. Right, so uh, speaking sweetly and courteously uh, to your yeah. husband, I guess, is a, a feminine. That's a start. Uh, uh, so, I mean, what? I mean, just what is this? Where do these attributes come from? Do they come from nature? Uh, do they come from uh, society, cultural change over time? Where? Do, who defines mm-hmm. the attributes and uh, such that a woman ought to display? I yeah, have no cultural idea. stereotypes. He's he's enforcing them really, that men got to be tough and masculine, and they're the ones who go out and hunt and work in construction jobs, and the woman's job is to be sweet and feminine and ma- uh, you know, all those kind of things. Right. I mean, women play with dolls. Boys tear the heads off of dolls. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, I mean, this just this idea. I just want to continue to plant these bugs uh, in your ear, listener, as we listen uh, to this. Because we're probably not going to finish it, and so I just I I, I want you to know that all of these bugs that I'm planting uh, do get uh, answered in this uh, video to some degree. We'll have more to say. Uh, back to Doug. So it's a vice, not a virtue, when he is being that way, and it's a virtue when she is being that way. So the definition of what constitutes devout piety has drifted into feminine territory. And ministers have labored to keep up with the shifting expectations. The sweetest and gentlest boy in the church is the one who was told repeatedly while growing up that he really ought to consider seminary. The old ladies pinch his cheek and say, you're such a sweet boy. You should preach the word of God. The boy who has garnered 17 black eyes and three broken arms while growing up is never told that by anybody. We need to keep that boy away from the pulpit. Now, the reasons for this are many, but they include a medieval shift. And this, some of the reasons for this go back centuries. But, uh, and I read one book that I thought was very persuasive, a gentleman named Leon Podlis, who wrote a, a book called The Church Impotent. He argued, he, he blamed uh, the beginning of this shift on Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a... Um, uh, medieval uh, churchman who shifted, uh, well, I began earlier by saying that the church is the bride of Christ, which means that it's fully appropriate in a corporate setting where we're singing hymns to be praising Christ as the bridegroom and we are the gathered bride. That's, that's fine because we're a corporate entity. But what happens when you take that corporate piety and radically individualize it? Bring it down to the individual level for people to use in their individual devotions. Well, now you've got the men who want to be pious trying to get into the frame of mind of a bride preparing for her wedding day. 
And there's going to be two problems. One is they're going to be no good at it, <laughs> right? Just terrible. And they're going to get out of this church. As, they're going to leave as soon as they can, right? They're going to go because it's not a conducive environment. I, what, this piety thing, that preparing myself for my wedding day like I'm a, bri like I'm a bride trying on her wedding dress. So he leaves. And this is one of the reasons why in the Western church, the, Bernard of Clairvaux had a big impact on the Western church. Okay, we're just going to pause there for a moment. I know that uh, as a uh, doctor, this is some of the uh, part of your study and you have some expertise here. Tell us a little bit more about Bernard of Clairvaux and where he might be going with us. Yeah, I think where he's going with it is he doesn't actually explain how Bernard of Clairvaux brought that about. But one of the things I remember, I used to teach Old Testament survey and we used to cover Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. And I remember Bernard of Clairvaux was one of the first, if not the first, to advance the idea of the, it was an allegory of Christ in the church. So it wasn't about a sexual relationship between Solomon and the Shulamite woman. It was actually an elaborate allegory. And that caused a lot of hermeneutical problems because, you know, Jesus and me having sex together, <laughs> it's just uh, creepy as hell, you know. So that might be where some of this effeminacy has crept into the church, you know. But he's got some problems here. Uh, with this Bernard of Clairvaux, unfortunately. This is, um, and in the Western Church, both in Catholicism and Protestantism, um, there is a, a real shortage of men in church. Okay, there's a uh, church is a, uh, dominated by women. That's not the case with Islam. That's not the case with Judaism. It's not the case with Eastern Orthodoxy. But in the West, where Bernard did his thing, um, there is this tendency. So the first thing is that men are no good at it, and they, t they leave. The second problem you develop is that they are good at it. Okay? And you don't want men who are good at imagining individually that they're the bride. So... Um, you want to pause that for a second? Yes. Why, why that, though? He, he really has this bias against, I guess, effeminate men. Because he talked about the little boy growing up and the old ladies pinching his cheek. We don't want that guy in the pulpit. What, who, do, who do we want? The Mark Driscolls of the world? I mean, what, what kind of a guy do you want, want in the pulpit? Um, and this is the cause for why men have fled the church in the West, and it's dominated by women, apparently. Yeah, yeah. He would rather have the guy that uh, has had 17 black eyes and a few broken noses and uh, broken ribs. Yeah. because He wants know, a brawler. He's, yeah, he's, he's brawling in the bar. That's a man-man, not like one of those girly men. <laughs> the transfer of the role of the bride from the community to the soul has helped bring about the pious individualism that has dissolved ecclesiastical community in the West. So the corporate church can be feminine, even though half of it is male. The corporate church can be feminine and it's supposed to be feminine. But if you bring it down to the individual level, like that old 80s country song, Me and Jesus, got our own thing going, all right, if it's just me and Jesus, then you're going you're gonna to run into trouble. Now, if the definitions of the godly minister are essentially feminine, what sense does it make to keep those who are really feminine out of that post? It makes no sense at all. The women can do what we think ministry should be better than the men can, because women are naturally better at feminine piety than the men are. Right? If, if so if your ideal... Um, minister is someone who is gentle and soft-spoken and 
soft social skills and can read people and intuitive, and, you know, all th that kind of thing. Um, half the women in the church are better th at that than he is. Yeah, so his argument here, in case anyone uh, has gotten lost with it, as, uh, as I did the very first time I heard it through, he's saying that if, um, if the church is the bride of Christ, if the, first, if the church is to take a feminine position toward Christ, then actual women, actual feminine people in the church should be in charge. That would make sense because mm -hmm. it's a feminine thing. But he's kind of having to thread the needle uh, a little bit and go back and forth and say, well, you know, the organization is feminine, but individually we have masculine and feminine. And so at the individual level, uh, men are men, women are women, and w men should be in charge, except corporately Jesus is in charge and we're all in that feminine <laughs> position um, but even though we're all in that feminine position, uh, females shouldn't actually, you know, have leadership positions because it's yeah. not in the feminine makeup to be a leader. F females yeah, a, are a, not supposed to be leaders. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of the conundrum there. The church is a feminine thing, but females aren't supposed to be leaders. Even though they're probably better at it, according to his logic, than most men. Right. They're, because they're, he's reinforcing those those cultural stereotypes. Women are more intuitive and more sensitive and kinder, gentler, and all that. So, therefore, they should probably be in charge of a church. You don't want some asshole running the place, you know, a male uh, who's, who's a bully, bully guy like Mark Driscoll was. You know, he wasn't a girly man, though. But look what happened there. He was abusive and bullying and, and threatening and all the rest of it. But he was tough and macho. Yeah, and that see the thing is that's exactly the kind of person he wants because what he's saying yeah. is, uh, even though it logically makes sense for women to be in charge, the kind of leader that Jesus wants over his church isn't feminine at all, and so <laughs> uh, so we'll let him kind of play that out. But if uh, you know, just in case this was going to cause any confusion, I may have made it even more confusing. I don't know, but that's, I think this, he did. This is. Uh, <laughs> Kind of what he's trying to say, so you have to kind of thread the needle a little bit. Okay, so you're going to get that's going to increase the pressure. Traditionalists are fighting a rearguard action, trying to keep women out of a post that they're clearly more qualified for than the men are. Feelings can run high in the in the debate, but the debate is essentially over whether men only or women and men both should occupy the post of an essentially feminized office. Okay. If anyone has the temerity to suggest that we return to the older view of a genuinely masculine office. So when you have a masculine office with men leading the church who are unashamedly masculine, when you do that, the church as a whole is being feminine, right? Because that's what we're told to do. So if anyone suggests that we return to a genuinely masculine understanding of this office, then both sides in the contemporary debate will stare at him aghast. And this is going to remain this way so long as girly men, complementarians, persist in trying to keep girly women from getting their share of the effeminate action. We just knew that girly men was going to show up. There it <laughs> so, is. There you go. He had because to do of it. How we've, because of how we have been backed into a corner, 
the egalitarians, do I need to define those terms? Complementarian yes. is the, uh, the traditionalist view that men and women have different roles that are complementary to one another, but they're, they have different roles. The egalitarians are those who say that men and women are interchangeable, women should be ordained to the offices of the church, etc. So that, that's the egalitarian position. The complementarians say no. Okay, and just to be clear, there is another uh, idea that's more further to the right than complementarian, which would be male patriarchy. Um, yeah, biblical patriarchy. Biblical, yeah, biblical patriarchy and uh, male patriarchy. That's kind of redundant, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, yeah, biblical patriarchy, technically more conservative, but honestly, uh, and even though this is not what he's claiming, if you listen to what he's teaching, it it really sounds more like biblical patriarchy uh, than yeah. anything else. I, and I think that complementarianism is just kind of the soft pedal that these guys use to sell what they really mean. Uh, now, this, this might uh, open me to the accusation of telling people what they think as opposed to listening to what they say. But I, in, in this case, I am listening to what he's saying and I'm mapping it on to the various philosophies and options there. He just didn't mention biblical patriarchy. And if he did, and if he had broken it down, I think that you too would say, well, what he's saying fits kind of in that box too. Yeah. So because of how we've been backed into this corner, the egalitarians have a real point if they were to say that exclusion of women from ministerial office is arbitrary. When we think of how the modern ministerial call is defined, it is arbitrary to keep the women out. If you think that if uh, gentle, soft-spokenness, high social skills, empathy, if that's your sumum bonum for the ministerial office, then why only let the people into that office who are bad at it and why keep people out who are good at it? So, if we but if we recognize that the word of God not only excludes women becoming women ministers, and this is an important point, if we recognize that the word of God not only excludes women becoming women ministers, but it also excludes men from becoming women ministers, right? Everybody is excluded from being a women minister. But when we get that, we'll be on the road to recovery. Um, you want to pause it there, just book, a quick fantastic. one? Yes. I don't understand what that means. The Bible says women shouldn't be women ministers and men shouldn't be women ministers too. Do you, do you understand what he's talking about there? Yes, because this is a knock against uh, femininity and mm. a, a plea for masculinity. And so uh, he's saying that a woman minister would have certain kind of characteristics and traits, and God doesn't want that in ministry. So uh, in the same way that he doesn't want women to have a feminized ministry. He also doesn't want men to have a feminized ministry. There is no place in the church for feminized ministry. The girly man. Yeah. A book called The Feminization of American Culture, written by a woman, uh, a feminist scholar, actually. Her name is Ann Douglas. And she uh, wrote this. American Calvinism possessed in the 17th and 18th centuries and lost in the 19th, 
a toughness, a sternness, an intellectual rigor, which our society then and since has been accustomed to identify with masculinity in some not totally inaccurate, inaccurate if circular sense. Okay, I just, I gotta, I gotta, I can't let this pass. Intellectual, in intellectual rigor is thrown into this list. You know, uh, toughness, sternness. Okay, those are men's traits. Intellectual rigor, also <laughs> listed as a man trait. And we've lost this because right. of the feminization of the church and leaders. Because, you know, those women, they don't have any intellectual rigor. Yeah, they can't be intellectually rigorous. Right, no. You, Not if, capable if, of critical thinking and if, all that. Right, no, if you want something, <laughs> you know, a theology with some real intellectual regular, uh, rigor, you need a man. So she's saying that in early America, in the era of the founding, uh, the, the church in America was really tough-minded, led by tough men, and they were visibly, obviously masculine in their leadership. Now, there, there are a bunch of things that happened here. And I, I, so visibly and obviously, what, what are the visible signs of masculinity in this guy's <laughs> mind? Beards? He's got a beard. <laughs> he's, got, he's got a beard. You've got a beard. Um, yeah. I got, you had a beard. I got some stubble. Does that count? <laughs> no. I, I mean, I'm You're sliding into effeminacy, David. Come on. Uh, no, no, no. I'm headed toward masculinity. Give me, give me some time. Uh, so this is one of the rare times when I'm going to step out of the sermon and sermonize myself by going into the Bible uh, and just throwing this passage out to you because you guys know that I'm a theological walk. I love this stuff. Um, I have a problem. So uh, Deuteronomy chapter... Uh, 22 verse 5 uh this is the old king james because sometimes that's what you got to reach for to get the real punch uh the you know real men wrote that translation um the women sorry excuse me professional the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man neither shall a man put on a woman's garment for all that do so are abomination Unto mm. the Lord thy God. Uh, Clint, what are the clothes pertaining only unto a man versus the clothes pertaining unto a woman? You know, uh, panties were called, uh, pantyhose were called pantaloons, which became pants. Mm. Um, right. You know, so I'm... Is it <laughs> dress, well? Dress, men can't wear a dress. That's for sure. Well, that would I be mean, one. except for the, the Scottish, who uh, you know find the skirt to be, you know, okay as long as it has plaid. Uh, yeah, if you're Scottish, it, you're all right. A Scottish it, man. If you're Mel Gibson in Braveheart, you want to wear a, a kilt. Uh, that's not a dress. Sandals, flip flops. You yeah. know those you shoes that show off. You know a woman's pretty feet. What, what do you get? What happens when a man wears those? It's a slippery right? slope, David. It's a, <laughs> it's a it's a slippery slope indeed. So I mean, the, so what the hell uh, are the visible signs of masculinity? Uh, I ask that of Doug Wilson and also the fool who wrote uh, Deuteronomy. What what are <laughs> these signs? These clothes? These things that you put on that are pertaining somehow naturally pertaining to a man mm -hmm. or a woman 
what about cultural drift? Uh, some things that women only used to wear, men wear. What about unisex clothing? Um, you know, could a person just say as a loophole, uh, you know what, culture has changed and we have unisex clothing and it's okay for men to wear earrings. And so uh, if this was just a cultural passage, you know, talking about what, what that culture thought of as things pertaining to a man and a woman's dress, is it okay for that to change? Well, I don't think that it, I don't think that that would be right then because mm. our culture pretty much allows anything. And so this verse would be negated. Uh, I don't think that you can get out of a direct command of God just by saying, okay, I understand the command. We're going to change the culture. And well, now yeah. your command doesn't mean anything. And uh, the, the, the quote that he read from that feminist scholar, I mean, I think you could, you could put it in context. Perhaps she was saying, this is a good thing that we've lost that overt and you know, outward masculinity and, quote, rigorous thinking and all that. Society's become more progressive. This is good. And he's, he's saying, uh, we want to fight against the progressivism. We want to go back to men in charge of churches, men in charge of marriages. We're fighting against the tide, even though the society is clearly heading in a much more progressive direction. Yeah, yeah, we definitely want men that are visibly masculine, you know, with beards. I don't have yeah. time to go into everything, maybe in the Q&A. But, uh... I have seen some of you men out there who who listen to the show because some of you do the show and, and you don't uh, do cameras, but I have seen you, I'm not calling any of you out, but some of you are very suspiciously beardless. Before the industrial revolution, the industrial, industrial revolution Just putting hit it out America's there. <laughs> shores beginning in the first half of the 19th century. Before the industrial, before the industrial revolution came, you could tell what class someone belonged to, economic class, educated class or a minister or an attorney or a farmer or a laborer by glancing at them on the street. And you could do, tell that because the, the wealthier people, the educated people had um, cloth that was manufactured and everybody else had homespun. Okay, so the, the, the frontier farm, the how the, the middle class uh, folks had a, each home, each house was an economic unit in which everybody had to work like a dog in order to survive the winter, okay? And everybody, the woman and the man, everybody had a key economic role to play and it was very, very different. What happened was um, in the industrial revolution, when particularly when the textile mills came online in Manchester, England, all of a sudden textiles that weren't homespun were being mass produced and the wealth of everyone went up. Everyone became much wealthier. Uh, America, uh, there's, there's lots of rabbit trails here. I have to, I'm gonna have to be focused and disciplined. The average standard of living for Americans surpassed the average standard of living for Europeans in the 1740s. And we've never looked back. Okay, so America was wealthy early on. And what happened was before uh, in, on the, you know, a man would want to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise livestock, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna, we're gonna build a cabin in the woods and I wanna marry a two bucket woman. You know, uh, the well's a long way and she, <laughs> 
she's got to bring two buckets back. Everybody had a role to play. Well, what happened was, uh, with the Industrial Revolution, a bunch of these women were thrown out of work. Their, their economic um, contribution suddenly was no longer uh, ne necessary for survival. And because it wasn't necessary for survival, and they were wealthy, they had the same thing, same, same kind of thing happened uh, in post-World War II on a, on a different scale, when uh, a bunch of women were in the uh, war effort, working in the factories, then the soldiers came home, the women came home, and then uh, Westinghouse and Waring and all these people started making uh, labor-saving devices that filled up the kitchen, and an, a hard-working hard woman would be done by 10, 10 o'clock in the morning. And now what do I do? I've got time on my hands. And that's where a lot of the discontent and the, and the, uh, the next wave of feminism came from. Well, something early like that happened in the early 1800s. Just a brief observation. Um, you know, they had time on their hands and society went to hell. You know, that's, that's where you get this... Um, <laughs> You know this. Don't give women time to think. Yes, no. They 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 became feminists uh, because they certainly weren't carrying two buckets uh, yeah. to uh, you know from a, a long distance well and churning butter by hand, and they could be done with their chores. And you know, idle hands, devil devil's workshop, especially mm. uh, if it's a woman's idle hands. Am I right? Well, these women all of a sudden were wealthy and thrown out of work. And they assumed, and not because of a plot by anybody, but they assumed kind of a decorative role. And that's where we got the Victorian China doll. Um, put the woman up on the pedestal. She's not contributing anymore. And what's she going to do to fill up her hours? Well, she's going to start writing sappy novels. <laughs> and you think I'm kidding. Well, <laughs> what? Another thing that happened right around the same time is that the last uh, uh, church in, in North America that was established, in, uh, an established state church that received tax money was in Connecticut, and it was disestablished in the 1830s, okay, right around the same time. So what happened was uh, a lot of these women were thrown out of work, and a lot of the ministers, congregational ministers, were also thrown into the free market where they all of a sudden they had this they had to start competing with the Baptists and the Presbyterians and others for uh, you didn't just have tax support you just you had to preach a better sermon and, and they started to compete and then some of them teamed up with the women writing sappy novels and the ministers started writing sappy novels as well if any of you ever grew up on Elsie Dinsmore type of stories that's what those are or the most the most famous one is a book called In His Steps. Uh, a few decades ago, there was a WWJD bracelet that was going around, What Would Jesus Do? That What Would Jesus Do fad came from this book, In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? And in these novels, the woman is the Holy Ghost. She's the Holy Spirit. She's the converting influence. So you've got a male protagonist who is a ne'er-do-well. He is... Uh, he's a scapegrace, he is a rake, he's, some, he's unregenerate, and he's out there uh, cutting a wide swath, and he's, he needs to be brought to heel. And the woman is the converting influence, 
and she is the one who brings him, domesticates him, and that's, that's that novel, and that dominated the ethos of the 19th century. And a lot of conservatives in the 80s. Yes, yes. and I also just want to say to the listeners who are going through this lengthy, seemingly uh, uh, disconnected uh, line of thought that he's uh, going through. He's he's riffing, isn't he? Yeah, but it it does come back together, uh, I Hmm. I promise. Uh, Go ahead, uh, Clint. Well, I was going to say, yeah, basically, as I understand it, there's a really good book that he's parroting, which is uh, by a guy named Callum Brown called The Death of Christian Britain. And basically, he articulates everything that Doug Wilson just said. He, the argument is is that in the Victorian era in Britain, and then it spread to America in the 19th century, that Christianity became feminized and femininity became Christianized. That's basically the thesis of his book. And he shows how that is done through um, Victorian novels and, and news, Christian newsletters and things like that, which were a lot of them were written by women. And so this kind of became the ethos of the church in the West, so he's he's on to something here. It's not untrue that this this changed sort of the face of the Christian church in the West. This is a this is an actual thing. Yeah, what he uh, never connects, at least in my mind, is why that would be a bad thing. I thought that Elsie Dinsmore was a, tr- a staunch conservative thing. It was actually an early form of feminism. Right? It's, it's actually something else. So, Ann Douglas, uh, a recommender. Consider also how we've come to believe that people can morph and shift into something other than what God created them to be. Right, okay, so just really briefly, if I can do this briefly, uh, I don't give a damn what God created you to be, or me to be. Right. Uh, First of all, (laughs) I don't believe in a God and I don't believe in creation, but even if I did, this idea that somehow you have a, a kind of a genetic destiny a biological destiny and God wanted you this way. There are a lot of people who are born with birth defects and sometimes the Christian response is God loves you this way because he made you this, this way and he didn't make any mistakes. God didn't make junk. Okay. Well, let me uh, listen to me, elephant man. Uh, you can keep your, your <laughs> face as, as, as you like, if, if you like it, but don't keep it because that's the face God gave you. You, you have as much freedom to change that as you want to. And this is true for secularism too. If you think that you are a certain way because evolution made you this way, who cares? Who cares what evolution uh, made you, directed yeah. you to be? Uh, if evolution gave you a nose that was too small or too big uh, or too crooked, uh, we have the technology. You can change it. Uh, you are you should not be held captive or prison. By the way, this goes with uh, sexuality too. Don't care what your chromosomal makeup is. I don't care what you were born as cis male, cis female, something in between. Uh, if you were the kind of person who feels like you can have a choice between your gender, go for it. Doesn't matter what God made you, what nature made you. Uh, what Cthulhu made you, uh, what the aliens from Alpha Centauri made you, doesn't matter because <laughs> you are in control uh, of your destiny and you should not, in fact, uh, feel hampered by what some potential other being or other force made you into. That's all I wanted to say. I know mm-hmm. I'm going to take a lot of heat from that. Uh, yeah. Come at me, bro. <laughs> Sis, I'm, I'm ready for it. Clint, did you have anything to add to that? Well, yeah, I was going to say, going back to Wilson's argument, what you said at the end of the last little thing was that 
what he's failing to point out is what's wrong with that the feminism that's crept into the church the effeminacy and that but that is his that's his thesis is that since the 16th and 17th century we lost that calvinist masculine rigorous thinking and clearly obvious masculine leaders in charge of the church the church then in the victorian era became more and more feminized and christianity itself became feminized and this is the problem we've got to reclaim that masculine you know male leadership this is where he's going with it i think let's find out just so long as they have a desire to reinvent themselves this is a fundamental assumption beneath many of the controversies afflicting the church today he's talking about trans people uh and and gay people uh this is a dog whistle look uh if you want to reinvent yourself reinvent yourself as we look around us we see nations and cultures in disarray there are so many things going wrong that it, that it would be quite easy to despair where to start what battles should we fight and what should we let alone well here's the current if we if we say okay what does the bible say the church is for what does the bible teach us that the church is to do and let's do that and let's what what does the bible say about the uh, the christian family let's do that too so husbands love your wives as christ loved the church wives respect and submit to your husbands um, the church is responsible responsible for two fundamental things and that is birth and growth so bringing people to christ the new birth and then teaching them to obey everything christ commanded that's growth so the church is to bring people into the church uh, baptizing them that's the those are the marching orders that Jesus gave us in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew uh, where he says all authority is in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go disciple the nations baptizing them teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you now Jesus is saying the church as a the church as a whole has to learn obedience now when I do a wedding one of the things I uh, require one of the things I insist on is in the vows that I administer is the bride promises to obey and the husband does not the husband promises to love and to cherish she promises to be obedient uh, does anyone see a problem with this at all any any problem no then you <laughs> might be a misogynist you might be part of the problem yeah just putting it out there well now yeah go ahead it's interesting to know, isn't it? Because that, that's his that's his paradigm, isn't it? The woman doesn't have she has to submit. The man doesn't have to submit. He just has to love and obey Christ, and then love her, and she she can submit to that as long as he continues to uphold his part of this of this deal. Right, and before anyone uh, starts writing the post with uh, Ephesians uh, six in it, Brian, I I know who you are. I see you. <laughs> Put it down. Uh, I I understand here that um, uh, the passage actually uh, tells at one point both to submit to one another. That's okay, true. But there, there's so many ways to read that where that doesn't involve the man actually submitting to the woman. Because under Doug Wilson's uh, foundational belief, the way the man submits is by taking leadership. Because mm -hmm. God told him to take leadership, and so his role of submission is to lead. And the way he submits to the woman is to fulfill her deepest need, which is to lead her. 
So it, it doesn't actually mean that uh, today the woman gets to make decisions, tomorrow the man gets to make decisions, that's, uh, or that you equally make decisions together. That's not, in fact, what that's saying, at least in this type of uh, mm-hmm. view. So just, just wanted to put that out there. Put down your keyboard, you keyboard warriors. <laughs> and now they're all going to write a post about this. <laughs> when she's promising to be obedient, this is something I should have said uh, before, earlier, if a young Christian girl is meeting different guys and she meets a guy who is um, unsubmissive, he has a very low view of authority, any authority that's above him. You know, it could be the government, could be his parents, could be his teachers. If he has a very, very low view of authority above him, but simultaneously has a very high and strict view of his authority over anybody below him, you know what that's like? So I don't listen to anybody above me. What do they know? And everybody says, people under me, my kids, my wife, they have to be strictly obedient. If you meet a guy like that and you're still single, run. <laughs> run away. So in, in the one moment of solidarity, I will say, this is good advice. <laughs> so, it is good advice. But it's still operating from within that worldview because I was raised in the Bill Gothard Institute and Basic Life Principles cult as a kid, and the the model that he subscribed to was the so-called umbrella of authority. I don't know if you've come across that in any of your work, but it's it's basically the idea that you know Christ submits to God, the man submits to Christ, the wife submits to him underneath his, and all the umbrellas get smaller and smaller as you go down. And basically, that's I think Wilson's articulating a form of that. Where you know she's under his authority, but he himself is under someone else's authority. Right. You know, and if he doesn't submit to that authority, you should run away. And that's the loophole that he seems make makes him seem progressive. That the woman's uh, has the has the responsibility to choose the right mate. If she chooses the wrong guy, it basically comes down to her fault for being for making the wrong choice. Right. Uh, he prefaced this by saying, uh, "Any of you single women." Uh, yeah. And you're looking for a mate. If you have married someone and you become a Christian, uh, they do not say become a Christian and they're not submitting. That doesn't mean that you don't have to submit. You still have to submit. Yeah. So he's not and, offering you a way around that. Yeah. And there's another thing that, that does that gets left out of this whole conversation. And that is Doug Wilson. <clears throat> he's a big proponent of the courtship model of marriage. <clears throat> so he, in his view, a single woman would be under the authority that she would be submitting to her father while she's in the home. And then there's an, there's, if she has someone she's interested in, his parents also have to approve the marriage is, is chaper or the, the relationship is chaperoned. It's a very kind of an old courtship model at which point they get married. She transfers her submission to her new husband. So at no point is she out from under the authority of a male figure, her father, then her husband. So, this idea that she's got all these freedoms in Doug Wilson's world is a, is a lot less true than he makes it out to seem. Correct. And um, at risk of uh, digging this rabbit trail even wider. <laughs> uh, Go ahead. So the Get court, out the shovel. The courtship model uh, is not dating. So for those of you who aren't, aren't familiar with courtship, it has nothing to do with dating. In fact, it's almost mm-hmm. the opposite of dating. With dating... You're just going out with someone that you find compatible, you know, usually, usually physically, uh, 
sexually yeah. compatible. Some and, attraction there, yeah, chemistry. You know, but there's but there's no commitment. You know, dating is the thing that you do until you find a person uh, that you might want to commit to, and maybe you don't. Maybe it's just dating for fun. Courtship model is all about marriage. It is yeah. not about dating. And so on the first quote-unquote date of courtship, it's all about, I want to get married, you want to get married, and now we are just going through certain motions to make sure that that marriage is a good, compatible marriage. It's all about marriage. It's not about dating. Don't get those two things yeah. confused. It's more like an arranged marriage. And as long as the man is the ideal quote-unquote figure, because this is worth throwing in here now, and that is that there was a big controversy around Doug Wilson a few years ago in that he married a, a, a woman in his church to another man who was a New St. Andrews College student, who, which is his sort of Bible college in Moscow. Now, this man was a convicted sexual predator. His name was Stephen Sittler, but he met all the, quote, you know, criteria. After he'd come out of prison, he was a pedophile. But yet Doug Wilson said, well, he's rehabilitated himself. He meets all the target criteria. I can go ahead and marry him to this woman in my church because it's all been approved. They've, they've had this courtship model, and that's been a huge firestorm. And he's never you know, said, well, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. He said, if, if, it, if I had the chance to do it again, I would do it tomorrow. You know, So he's got a very twisted sense of the, how this works. He'll even marry a convicted pedophile to a woman uh, in his church. Yep, that's Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson, reveal a little bit more about who you are, please. Anyway, have nothing, nothing to do with that kind of person because you want someone, you don't want anybody telling you what to do who doesn't know what it's like to do that very thing. So when Jesus tells his disciples to wash one another's feet, he tells them that after he's just finished washing their feet. So just real quick, um, this this scene that he is describing, it is a scene in the Bible and that a lot of people go to when they talk about the submission of Jesus uh, and so on. But this this scene, this pericope, pericope is nothing more than performative piety. It's just performative piety. Mm -hmm. Jesus never yeah. does this before and as far as we know, never does this again. Uh, he is making a point using this foot washing almost as a metaphor if it was really that important to him, he would have done it the first day he met uh, his disciples and every day or week thereafter. Uh, but he did not. Uh, furthermore, his disciples did not go into some kind of ministry of foot washing. We never see them doing that uh, in Scripture. Uh, you know, there may be something in, in Catholic tradition. There's always something in Catholic tradition. I, I can't keep up with it all. Brian and I... This is where you can uh, attack your keyboard. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it, performative piety, no one gets points for that, even Jesus. Yeah. Have you ever had your feet washed in the context of a Christian church, David? Because I have. And it's have. really strange. It's, it's so very, strange. Yeah. It? it was a very uh, strange minister. Uh, he was kind of out there. Um, but once again, it was performative piety. It's not yeah. like it was, uh, you know, it would have been less strange if he said, this is something that we're going to do every week. All right. It would have been, it would have yeah, been stupid. One off. Right. It was just a one-off, uh, performative piety <laughs> kind of thing. And so, uh, yeah, sorry. doesn't count. He, he has, uh, demonstrated it for him, for them. And he says, 
you call me Lord, that's right, I'm, I am your Lord. He doesn't soft pedal who he is, but he takes on the role of a servant. And then he says to us, this is what I want you to do. But there's nothing in the Christian walk that the Lord of Christianity has not modeled himself. And that means that the church has to model, if the church... I mean, that's just, uh, I'm sorry, that's just so BS. People say, you know, there's nothing that we that we're asked to do that Jesus isn't asked to do and there's nothing that we suffer that he hasn't suffered. Not true. He didn't suffer a long lingering cancer. Uh what are we asked to yeah. do? He didn't he never got married, uh never had kids. Um as as near as I can tell, never bought a house. <laughs> so he's mm. never gone through that hell. Um so I'm not I'm not entirely sure what this is supposed to mean. This is just one of these ways that people talk about Jesus and try to inflate uh, his greatness by saying he's he's done all of the things that he's asked us to do. Not true, mm-hmm. <laughs> not not at all true. So, but his audience is going to soak it up. Though. Yep, no, they're they're going to soak it up, uh, and they're going to repeat that notion. But you, yep. you only have to stop and think about it just a little bit to see how ridiculous <laughs> it is. He wants to see true masculinity restored and true femininity restored. Then the church must become feminine, which is to say obedient, which is to say restore masculine leadership to its rightful place and teach husbands to sacrifice for their families and wives. And this is how I define masculinity. Masculinity is not machismo. Masculinity is the sacrificial assumption, the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. So if you gladly assume sacrificial responsibility and you say being masculine means you die. Being masculine means that when disaster is coming, you die first. Right? That's now that's it's easy to mock, you know, and the Titanic is sinking and the women and the children and the lifeboats first. Well, it's easy to mock, but it's hard to do. Okay, so uh, I'm just going to fulfill this prophecy and easily mock it. Um, so <laughs> How dare you, David? I do. I dare. Uh, <laughs> dare, so dare. <laughs> this is part of this uh, whole masculinity idea and what I would call toxic masculinity idea that uh, your role, your role as a man is to sacrifice yourself for that poor, helpless, feeble, uh, lesser woman of yours. Because, weaker. you know, she need yeah, the weaker vessel. She yep. needs to be protected from all danger, and you are her protector. You protect her honor, and if necessary, her life. Uh, and so, you know, he talks about a, a disaster, you know, where the, the women Sac- uh, the men sacrifice themselves for the women. Well, this is absolutely, utterly absurd. First of all, women also sacrifice themselves for their men and their children. Does that mean they're being mm-hmm. masculine and therefore doing something wrong? Of course not. Uh, it's a human thing to uh, to sacrifice yourself for someone you love. It's not some kind of masculine duty. But if you just play that all the way out to its illogical conclusion... Uh, then what you end up with uh, is a disaster that's going to kill 50% of the population. And all mm-hmm. of the men in Doug Wilson's framework do the right thing, and so they sacrifice themselves for all of the women. You have just 
killed off the human race because you can no longer <laughs> procreate. You're one generation from being dead. Thanks, evolution, for destroying the human race. Thank you. Well, you did the right thing. <laughs> thank you, masculinity. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, wow. Just sorry. Once again, but it, I just yeah. ask you to think this through yeah. just a little bit. Take it to its logical conclusion. Take it where to do you its end logical conclusion. Uh, you know, thanks, thanks, gallantry. <laughs> yeah, where did that get you? You well, killed again, us. <laughs> the, knowing, knowing Doug's backstory is hugely helpful here because the other question is, you take this other corollary to its logical conclusion, you say, in Doug Wilson's worldview, what happens to a woman who has a good man, in, in air quotes, the guy who is the servant leader, leader and who sacrificially you know, leads her and all that. What if she stubbornly refuses to submit to him? And his argument, he wrote in his book, Federal Husband, that the woman who does not submit to her authority figures, her father and her husband, she, he says, is tacitly agreeing to the propriety of rape. So in other words, in his view, if an unsubmissive woman is raped, it's basically her fault because she was unsubmissive and therefore... She was open to these attacks, sexual predation, you know, so that again, that's the dark side. If you go, well, what happens if they don't submit? What happens if the man doesn't sacrificially lead? He takes it into some very dark places. And with that, things just got dark. And it's yeah. hard to get a culture to the point where that becomes the cultural expectation, which we did over the course of centuries. And in our day, it's rapidly eroding. And... We have to recover that, but we can't recover it by saying, I know what, uh, why don't all you people out there, why don't you start obeying the hard verses? Well, the church ought to model obedience to the hard verses first. And ironically, if we model that kind of corporate femininity, it is going to result in a restoration of true masculinity in its place. I don't want the church to be corporately masculine. I want the church to be corporately the bride. And I want parts of the church, the elder meetings and the pulpit and certain places to be masculine. I want the leadership to be masculine because that's the feminine thing to do. Right? And if you, as, as soon as you say, uh, well, let's have the women uh, become elders and let's have, let's have uh, uh, the women take over this service, and let's have the let's start deferring to the women. Let's have the women uh, staff the pastoral search committee. All of a sudden, a different set of values will take over. So I find this one interesting. I've um, seen many pastoral search committees, and uh, outside of conservative very fundamentalist churches they all are staffed by you know a mix of men and women uh yeah we did and, and so this uh this idea that women can't even help look for a good masculine leader uh mm -hmm. you know that that just that strikes me as very strange and uh again very toxic um even it even is. for fundamentalist churches to say, oh well, we don't even want a woman to help us find a yeah, good to godly give her man input. or leaders. Yeah, we don't want her input. 
She doesn't get to have input over uh, any kind of leadership in this church. If she does, if you let a woman have any input in your ministry, you're going to end up with a girly man. Right? And the <laughs> values that are taking over are not bad values. They're just out of place. Right? They're, they're in the wrong place. Uh, in the same way that um, uh, my, son used, my son Nate used this example talking to women one time, he said, you want to be the kind of, um, you want to be the kind of mom who says to her son, son, I got you a present today at the store. And he opens it and he says, it's a hatchet. And a hatchet, a mom gave her son a hatchet. And he said, and <laughs> can I chop something with it? Well, sometimes here's the hatchet, don't chop anything. No, <laughs> no, here's the hatchet, go have fun. Don't lose any fingers, but if you do, no crying. <laughs> now that's that's the kind of situation that a boy can grow up and under and stand up straight. I mean, this is this is his good example God. of good parenting. This is this is good motherhood. <laughs> I'm gonna give I'm gonna you teach you how to use it safely. No, just no, go. just go play with it. I'm going to give you this weapon. <laughs> By the Don't way, here's some fingers. scissors. Here's some scissors you, you can run with. And um, yeah, if you chop off some digits, don't cry. Don't come crying to me. Sissy. Yeah. And that's the godly <laughs> man that Wilson wants in charge of churches, I guess. Right. I don't know. Right. I mean, that's the two bucket woman for you right there. <laughs> hey, there you go. Well, I will go. Um, now I have to. Um, <laughs> talking to a friend one time who was a woodworker who had accidentally cut off the tips of two of his fingers and he and I think my son and I were uh, yucking it up about it we were it was like a few months before and and we were laughing and joking about it and his fiance came up in the middle of our us joking about I think fiance or wife, I forget. Anyway, the woman he's married to now came up and she was aghast that we were joking about it. <laughs> what are you doing? And, and my friend just held it up and said, it's only fingers. <laughs> it's only fingers. Right. I mean, this is, this is good masculinity for this yes, guy. Yes, it is. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, sport of noodling. I don't know that this would have made it across the pond. Uh, it doesn't even make it out of the deep south here in America. So noodling is a form of fishing. Uh, you find a good spot and uh, you get into the water, uh, you know, it's some shallows, and then there's maybe a, a little cavern in the water uh, where some of the big fish uh, maybe go to hide. And the way you catch them is you stick your hand in the hole underwater. Yeah, I've seen you get, that. You get, yeah. you get your hand in there. And then this big fish bites down on your hand, and now you got him, and you pull him up, and that's noodling. Uh, there are many uh, nine-finger noodlers out there. Uh, folks, this is not to be celebrated. This is just stupid. This is just stupid. This is not masculinity. This is batshit crazy. All right. That kind of thing doesn't fly in certain circles right but in other circles it's invaluable so you want you you want the uh, the apostle paul says uh for example 
uh, when he was, says to the Thessalonians that we're, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, all right? So fathers, fathers and husbands should be tough and tender both. They should be like a velvet covered brick, okay? Tough and tender both. And the, and the toughness needs to be in the right place and the tenderness needs to be in the right place. You can't, um, think about it this way. If you have, um, if you have a foundation of concrete, a, a home is going to be like a, uh, uh, you've got the stud walls and the uh, carpets and the couches and all those things in the living room. But you can't pile up the carpet and the pillows and the cushions and everything and put a stud wall on that. It's, no, it's the feminine touch that makes the place livable, right? It makes the, you, nobody wants to live in a concrete bunker, but nobody, does, nobody wants to live in a house that doesn't have a concrete bunker underneath it, okay? So masculinity, understood rightly, is like that cold concrete that the house rests on. It's straight, it's cold, not that emotional, um, and you're glad it's there. It's cold and not emotional. More stereotypes. Because this is what masculinity is, folks. It's a and what velvet it should be. covered brick. And then you can, you can build a <laughs> livable space on top of that. But if you reversed it, you know, you put all the cushions underneath and then brought the concrete trucks in, you're going to have a total, complete, utter mess. All right, there are many places that we could uh, run to. Maybe you. I'm watching the time, uh, just so you know. I haven't gotten carried away. We might actually make it through this. Don't expect me to edit this out. Both, uh, both Clint and I have. Uh, <laughs> I'm heavy... not sure I can. Yeah, I could come back to this in three months. We need to make it through, David. Yeah, we got. We got to get through this thing. Uh, we had we got to finish about it. Uh, cutting this in half. Uh, a little bit of inside baseball. We did have this recording yesterday. I didn't hit record. Uh, and so we're, <laughs> we were going to finish it up today. I, let's make it through. I think we can make it. Um, we can do it. Here we go. I have a thought or a question. And I'll, t I'll try to repeat your question for the uh, recording. Yes. Okay. The question is, could I go over the difference between submission and obedience? Um, submission is a general demeanor that is pervasive throughout. Obedience comes up, I think, in a good marriage once every blue moon. All right, so um, uh, in, I've been married since 1975, and we got married on New Year's Eve, 1975. Took us a few years to figure out why the restaurants were always so crowded. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> well, it's New Year's Eve. Okay, not thinking ahead. So, um, married in 1975, I would say over those decades that we've been married, uh, submission in the sense, uh, all obedience, if it's a good, good attitude in it, all obedience is submission, but not all submission is obedience. So, obedience is a form of submission, but submission is a, is a demeanor that is pervasive throughout your life. So, um, there have probably been occasions where um, we came down to the point we had to make a decision. In a good situation, a husband and wife will discuss it. 
they can't they they don't agree on you know let's say the husband's got a job offer the wife doesn't want to take it the husband wants to take it and they they've gone over it numerous times and they they still are uh, not of one mind and the deadline's tomorrow and it, you know comes to, it's coming down to the point the husband should say something like as i understand you honey uh, you don't want us to do this uh, because of the following three reasons and he repeats them back to her so she knows she's heard she knows that he was listening and then he says and my reasons for thinking the opposite are these and please let's pray together and we'll decide tomorrow and if they're still not of one mind then he decides and she obeys he might decide either way right he, he might that doesn't mean that when it's a tie he gets the the tie doesn't go to the husband the the tie means the husband decides right the reason the tie doesn't go to the husband is because the decision is always the husband's <laughs> it's, yeah it's, when push it, comes to shove well you, you don't even have to push and shove uh the yeah. husband doesn't even have to say uh i'm going to hear you out and then we'll pray over it and decide tomorrow he can decide right now it could be a opportunity yeah. cost he needs to make a decision now uh, he can make it an executive decision without even telling the wife uh, that's that's why it's not a tiebreaker because there's never actually any uh, doubt about whose decision it is. It's always the husband's decision, mm -hmm. and you know he might get swayed by what the woman says, but she never gets to actually make the decision. Yep. Uh, in in his world, that's that's what it is. The wife is always submissive to the husband, and when necessary. She just has to drop her uh, desire for his, even if he's a fucking idiot. And if she's still yeah. not of that mind, that's the point where she obeys. And But in the decades we've been married, that kind of situation has come up fewer than 10 times, maybe fewer than five. Have you considered that maybe it hasn't come up that often because your wife knows not to argue with you? She she yeah. knows at this point not to even bring up any objections because you're just going to do what you want to anyway. Have you considered that she has been beaten down so much yeah. by this by this situation that she just knows her place? And so it yeah. never comes to that. Well, and there's this is, again, the dark side of what he's talking about here, because he's he's layering on this veneer of sort of progressivism, piety. He says, look, you discuss it, you talk about it. There's the progressive element. Then you get the piety. Go away, pray about it overnight. Come back. We'll make a decision tomorrow. It all sounds fairly egalitarian until the husband says, this is what the decision is going to be. I'm taking that job. We're moving across the country, whatever it might be, even though you 100% object. Now, in Wilson's churches, there's been documented cases of marital rape, which is where the the wife has been essentially sexually assaulted by her husband because in Wilson's teachings, she cannot say no to him. She has to obey even if she doesn't want to have sex. And he does. She has to obey. So there's been documented cases reported of marital rape. So that's the dark side of this whole thing that sounds so uh you know, egalitarian, it actually is very dark on this thing. Right. And in those cases of marital rape, there's there's this added pressure that if your husband, uh, you know, if you say no and your husband uh, relents 
and doesn't have sex with you, but then he goes to work the next day and has sex with his secretary. That was your yep. fault. Yep. That was on you. So it's, I think that if you're, wor- if you're working through things the way you ought to, it's not going to come down to that. But the, um, Nancy's orientation to the home and to the family and to our kids is a completely different orientation than mine has been. And I would describe that as the orientation of submission. So uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that the uh, man was not made for the woman, but the woman for the man. And God says in Genesis that he's going to make a helper suitable for the man. So the, the woman is created to complete and help and enable him to com- complete his mission. And you can see this in... Um, you can see this in great literature, and you can see this in hack uh, literature. Um, if it's a novel written by a man for men, if it's a novel written by a woman for women, uh, and it can be great literature, it can be it can be Homer's Odyssey or a Louis L'Amour novel, it can be Pride and Prejudice or a, some Safeway romance um, thing, a, written by a woman for for women, written by a man for men. If it's written by a man for men, what's the book about? It's about the mission. Okay, it's about the war. It's about getting the cattle back. It's about finding the gold. It's about spiking the guns of Navarone. It's, you know, it's, we're gonna, and then when the girl enters this, the novel, uh, in Louis L'Amour, plucky rancher's daughter, she comes in from the side in order to do what? To help get the cattle back, to help get the gold, to, to help complete the mission. When you're looking at a book by a woman for women, the relationship is the plot. Okay? First they kind of like each other, then, there's a, then they don't like each other, and then they like each other again, and it's time for another one. <laughs> <laughs> now this can be done very ably, as Jane Austen does, you know, but that's the, that's the structure. The relationship is the, so the woman's, the, the, the woman's orientation is very different than the man's orientation. This is just bullshit. So I have been reading yeah, way schlock long of an novels. <laughs> yeah, I've been reading schlock novels since I was six. Okay, I uh, there there isn't a, a category of this that I haven't read at least a hundred books in, uh, and I've read uh, read read them from women and men from all perspectives. And I can tell you right now that there is there is no such uniformity. Uh, that men, when writing books for men, because I was also a Louis L'Amour and Zane Grey uh, fan, uh, that that somehow men write uh, for the mission, women write for the relationship. Uh, some of some of the great thrillers of our time were uh, and of other times were written by women. Um, horror stories, uh, women, uh, science fiction, uh, women, right? Uh, It's and so this is just a part of this this mindset this this um stereotype that he has yeah. about what a woman fundamentally is and what a man fundamentally is and it is just fundamentally untrue and both are right in having that or um god didn't mess up by giving men this orientation and women that orientation he expects them to be communicating and talking it through and he expects them both to be deferring to the other so what happens is can do it um what happens is you've got this uh some oftentimes guys in college 
the lights come on late in their sophomore year. I am going to have to make a living. <laughs> Why didn't I study earlier? Uh, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to get married. I'm going to have to support a family. I'm going to have to buy a minivan. I'm, you know, <laughs> car, car, car seats. Um, and so what happens? Guys approach life like a dog pushing a rock. Up the sidewalk, pushing a rock, pushing a rock, pushing a rock, and they get to the end, pushing a rock, pushing a rock, pushing a rock. And, it's, and when they get done with one thing, it's on to the next thing, right? Well, what happens is when he gets to the, that point where, you know, I need to get married. He focused, that's, the, that's on his to-do list, and he starts pursuing a girl, and from the girl's vantage point, it's just like the novel. They're facing each other like this. It's not like his novel at all, but that's an optical illusion <laughs> because he's come, he's, it's time for me to get married. I need to get married. And so they, uh, they get married, have their honeymoon, things go well for three months, and then he's off to work. And she's thinking, what on earth just happened? Did I turn ugly or something? What, what, what happened? Well, what happened is that they both were poorly taught about what to expect, all right? And, and so he's, he needs to be taught, look, you can't just win your wife and strand her. You've, you've got to pay attention to her, love your wife as Christ, love the church. And the woman has to realize that he's built for the world. He's built to go out into the world and make a dent. And then he comes back and I patch up the wounds and feed him something hot and, you know, and this is gonna sound, I know you're, you might be thinking, this sounds, very, very traditional. I was thinking uh, toxic masculinity, but go ahead. <laughs> yes, you're understanding me. <laughs> it's very traditional, possibly even illegal, but, <laughs> but I believe that God has built men to engage with the world, and God has built women to be domestic, and that doesn't mean, in Proverbs, Proverbs 31, uh, if someone says, do you agree with the cliché that a woman's place is in the home. The answer is, I saw a great sweatshirt once. If a woman's place is in the home, then why am I always in the car? <laughs> um, if the woman's, I don't believe the woman's place is in the home. I believe the woman's priority is the home. The woman's priority is the home because in Proverbs 31, the woman there is, she considers a, a field and buys it. She's running a vineyard, she's like a merchant ship that brings goods from afar, she makes goods for the poor, she's very much engaged in the community and out there, but her base of operations is domestic, her base of operations is the home. The husband's role is to provide and protect, and uh, so the man is doing something very different than what the woman does, and each, the husband and the wife, if they're taught, they know what the other person's job assignment is, and they do what they can to make it easy for the other person to fulfill their assignment. Okay, so what if the man is just a better domestician than, got the, a problem, than the woman, right? I mean, what, what, is, what, what happens what? when he uh, has a more natural orientation for the home and the woman has the more natural orientation to be out in the world i mean are yeah she has you know, a career what this what this guy would say 
is that they have the wrong role and are sinful. And it doesn't matter that it's mm-hmm. working for them. <laughs> it doesn't matter that it's yep. effective. It doesn't matter that it fits uh, best with their character. This man is saying they have a pre-assigned role and whether they're good at it or not is irrelevant. That's the role that God yeah. put them in. Well, and I would argue I've seen it in my own upbringing. My, my parents raised us according to the Bill Gothard model, which was a very similar patriarchal model to what Wilson's argument is. And the problem with that was my mom was a very strong-willed person. My dad was a very passive person. But when they when they went under the Gothard system, she was then forced to submit to him. But he didn't want to be the leader. That wasn't his personality. She actually was more of the leader type. And that caused so much problems. They were unhappy in their marriage. And then they tried to raise us kids according to those same principles. And they were miserable. You know, So this system, it just doesn't work because it doesn't take into account different personality types. Right, but it's the will of God. So yep. the husband mm-hmm. gives his wife the wherewithal that she needs to be a helper to him, and she uses the help uh, to enable him to provide for her. So. Yes? How seriously should any one guy take his own authority? Okay, how seriously should a guy take his own authority? Yes. Is he in a relationship where he has any? Yeah. All right. So if a man is uh, married and has kids, he should take his own authority very seriously. But there are two ways to do this, two ways to do it. One screws everybody up and the other is a gift to everybody. So there's a kind I said earlier that masculinity is not machismo. There's a certain kind of machismo that is just frankly brittle. It's like a porcelain vase. Uh, And one of the reasons guys brag and boast is because they're trying to keep people at a distance. Um, It reminds me of H.L. Mencken's definition of self-respect. He said that self-respect is that deep assured feeling that no one as of yet is suspicious. (laughs) So there are guys who are, they, 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 they don't want to, they can't take any criticism. They can't take any feedback because it hurts their feelings. And that's effeminate. What, uh, um, so I don't, uh, but a husband, who t- a husband and father who takes his own authority seriously is giving to, let's say he's teaching his son to respect his authority. There's a way of doing that that is a gift to the son. There's a way of doing that that is browbeating the son. So if uh, the son is balancing a pea on a knife at the dinner table and dad bites his head off, you know, because that's bad manners. Oh, and biting someone's head off at the dinner table isn't bad manners? <laughs> um, so if he's doing that, it's, it's, it's destructive. But if he corrects and disciplines the right way, he's giving his son respect for authority. And the, uh, the um, fifth commandment is that Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 is the first commandment with a promise that your life may go well in the land. So fathers and mothers should discipline their children to respect their authority highly, but there's a way of doing it without looking like you're doing it because for ego reasons. You must not do it for ego reasons. You must do it as a gift. Another question. Yes. 
So, I mean, we live in a day and age that everything is subjective, everything is, is up for interpretation. Um, what, what would you say is a working framework, biblically speaking, to define the difference between that? Okay, what is the what is the so biblical? Just, this is what women do generally, and this is what men do generally. That's 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 completely frowned upon nowadays. Right. So the framework. Uh, what is the framework for defining masculinity and femininity? Apart apart from uh, listing off stereotyped tasks, right? Which is what you have done this entire thing, by the way. It, for anyone who didn't hear the question, uh, you specifically ask about a biblical uh, framework. framework. And uh, he's so he's looking for the theology behind this. Uh, so if I said masculinity is taking out the garbage, femininity is washing the dishes, that's answering it in terms of tasks that we have assigned to it in our Western culture, right? Uh, masculinity at the principial level is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Masculinity provides and protects. Masculinity initiates. Femininity responds. The, the man bows, the woman curtsies. Right, so there's a, it's, it's not a symmetrical relationship. So the man... And that's kind of all you need to know. It's not a symmetrical mm. uh, relationship. Um, you might want to write that down and underline that, uh, Doug Wilson fans. He takes the lead, he takes the initiative, he takes the risk, he takes the responsibility. And then he comes back and brings it to the, he brings what he has attained, what he's, he used the phrase of the breadwinner, he's the breadwinner. He brings back the grain to his wife, he gives it to her, she glorifies it, she takes it and glorifies it. And it comes back to him as a loaf of bread. And this, I think, is um, the kind of thing that we see at every level. Um, a man gives uh, a man gives a woman seed, and she gives him a son. So w women are the glorifiers. Does that make sense? The femininity. Um, that's why Proverbs says a woman is the crown of her husband. So the man is the head, but the woman is the crown. And that, that is the complicated dance that a lot of traditionalists don't get. Okay. Um, so he does know that uh, most Michelin star chefs and chefs that appear on TV shows and chefs in general are men. Uh, so, yes. the, uh, you know, man goes out and gets the grain, woman bakes the bread. What if the woman can't cook and doesn't want to cook? <laughs> what if the man wants to cook? <laughs> so, you know, yeah, and she's bringing home the the grain. You know, and so he, he he starts off by saying, you know, you can't define this just by tasks, and then he spends the rest of his answer defining it by tasks. They 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 say I'm the boss. They the husband thinks being the head means I'm the boss, uh, but that's not what it means. It means you have authority, but authority is um, measured in Christian terms by your willingness to wear a crown of thorns, um, imitating the Lord. Your authority is your willingness to wear a crown of thorns. That's a crazy paradigm, isn't it? I, it really I, is. Yeah, I don't, I mean, what does I, that even mean? 
I have been tracking with him for most of this, but at, at some point, this just is, it all breaks down even for me. And I am, <laughs> believe it or not, trying. <laughs> I'm trying to listen to this charitably just so that I can understand what he is saying and accurately feed it back. And I can't feed that back for the life of me. Time for one more. Yeah. Oh, thank God. Could you speak a bit about the sort of evangelical fad of servant leadership and where that, where that goes right and where that goes Okay, great. Can I speak to the, the uh, faddish phrase in evangelical circles about the need to be, uh, to be servant leaders? Husband, husbands, fathers should be servant leaders. First, I don't object to the phrase at all. I think the phrase is great. The problem, because it is pointing to the example of the Lord Jesus, but where, where it goes wrong in evangelical circles is uh, men try to be servant leaders and they tried to do it, they tried to lead by serving. Right? They tried to lead by serving when they ought to be serving by leading. Okay, you, you want to serve your people by leading, by taking responsibility. That's the key. This is one of the things that I said early on, and so it kind of comes back full circle. The way a man submits to his wife is by leading. That's, yep. that's what and it is. And to Christ. It's, it's not, yeah. it's not mutual submission in the same way that the woman submits to you, you submit to the woman. It is the woman submits to you, and you offer your submission to the woman by leading her. Yeah. <laughs> That's, so you it, know. it's a new twist on the servant leadership model, isn't it? Yeah. He, what did he say? You don't, you don't lead by, you don't serve by lead. No, you serve by leading. I don't. I'm trying to figure out what he said, but yeah, you that's don't. Basically you it. don't lead by serving. Yeah. You serve mm -hmm. by leading. That's it. Yeah. So, um, imagine a guy and a girl on the first date, and they, what well, he picks her up. They go outside of her apartment, and he says, "So, what do you want to do?" I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and she says, what kind of dweeb is this? <laughs> why, why did I say yes? Why did I say yes? I don't want to say yes. I don't want to stand around with some guy. I don't know. What do you want to do? Um, which he needs to do is serve her, but he shouldn't make reservations at his favorite restaurant because he's going to be greedy and grabby, and that's where he wants to eat. He wants to make, reserve, make reservations at the restaurant as a way of serving her by leading, by um, being decisive about it. Now, that's all very well, but these things are um, complicated because women know that men sometimes have heard talks like this, and, <laughs> and they don't know if the guy is doing that because he's really like that, or if he just heard the talk and he's trying it out. And so they, women will test the guy. She's thinking, oh, I hope he's not the kind of guy who says, I don't know where you wanna go. And, and it turns out he's not. He says, let's do some Mexican. I made some reservations. And she says, I like Chinese. Now, why she, what's she doing? <laughs> she's testing him. Right? She's testing him because she doesn't want she she doesn't want him to just boss her around, but she wants to be led. But she wants to be led because not because some Bible teacher told him what to do, but because that's what he wants to do, and he wants to give her, and he wants to say no, no, I, 
this is a really special place. I really wanted to show show this to you. And you want she wants him to stick to his guns the right way. Um, I, one time there was a situation where a wife. This is a married situation. The wife was wanting her husband to have. Can't we have family devotions? Other families have family devotions. Can't we uh, read the Bible at dinner? Um, and she did this, said this periodically, like for weeks, a long time. Finally, the husband said, okay, okay all right, we're going to have family devotions. He went and got his Bible uh, after, after dinner, before dessert, sat down at the dinner table with his Bible, and she got up and went to do, to do the dishes. Now, what's she doing? She's saying, I don't want him to read the Bible because I nagged him into it. I don't, because that's me leading, right? I don't want to be the leader. I want him to have family devotions because he wants to have family devotions. And in order to find that out, I have to go do the dishes and have him say, woman, get back here. <laughs> oh, that's my crazy. God. <laughs> just, that sounds, I, I was just going to say, that sounds exactly like what my mom used to say to me when I was a kid. She she would basically come to me as he was very unhealthy, and she would t tell me that my dad wasn't the spiritual leader of the household because we didn't have family devotions, he didn't read the Bible, we didn't pray together as a family. So this scenario is actually straight out of my own experiences, and it was part of the toxicity that led to them be having such an unhappy marriage. He wasn't going to be the spiritual leader because that wasn't his personality, that wasn't him, but she was pushing him all the time to be that something that he wasn't. You know what I mean? So this is actually a real a real life scenario he's painting there. Yeah, and it, it just strikes me in that scenario, you've got a woman who really cares about this stuff. Uh, so she could say, look, let's have family devotional tonight. And she can take out the Bible and start reading. And the dude would probably just say, yeah, okay. Let's <laughs> know what yeah, she said. That would be but wrong. If, that would be wrong. She's teaching him. Right. She's, Women she's don't now have leading. Women over men. And, and when women go off their own way after you tell them what uh, you know, you want to do, they, they do something different. They're testing you because they want you to snap them back and say, Oh, look here, woman. Oh my God. Say we're going to Mexico. Nice. Well, <laughs> long run. It is nice because you're, you want to love everybody. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. And again, I'm open to questions afterwards. Okay. We're not going to close in prayer here. Uh, Stay so, by the bell. Yeah, so uh, just wow, this is a great opportunity for a planned closing statement, but I just can't. I, I'm just not uh, not gonna do it. Um, I've got re one. Recovering from religion. Dot org. Uh, that's what I'll say. Yeah. If you if you have had uh, this kind of toxicity in your marriage or in your home, you grew up in this kind of home and uh, you are feeling that it has left you with some scars, you're probably right. Recovering from religion.org. There will be resources and phone numbers uh, so that you can uh, help find your way into a healthier frame of mind. Clint, close us out. I was going to say, yeah. So for those of you that want to find out more, I've alluded to the backstory. So I've done about six or seven episodes on Doug Wilson. I mean, we're talking long form. Some of them are over two hours long investigating his sort of theological backstory, the many scandals he's been involved with over the decades, 
talking about biblical patriarchy, how that's creeping into the secular manosphere. So you can go to my website, which is mindshiftpodcast.co.uk, and look at all the episodes there. You can go on Spotify. I've created a playlist of all the Doug Wilson episodes. And in fact, I'm going to do one more on a subject we've touched base on, which is his views on Southern slavery, which is another disturbing thing as well. So there's a lot of resources out there if you want to find out more about who Doug Wilson is. I've done a huge deep dive into this guy. And uh, with that, I leave you with the happy thought as we end this season. Masculine seepage. (laughs) I love that one. (laughs) Bye-bye.